The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. It is wonderful to be here in this place, wonderful and fearful at the same time, to look on your faces and to do it from this perspective as one of your elders. So thank you for being here this morning. I exhort, I exhort you slaves, be subject to your masters. I exhort you wives, be subject to your husbands. I exhort you husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. I especially exhort you elders this morning, according to the text that was just read. And next week, those of you who are younger are going to be exhorted as well. This is a this is a letter that we have that Peter himself called an extended exhortation. If you've got your Bibles open, look across the page at uh, near the end of the, of the book in verses 12 and 13 where Peter says, By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting, and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. What does it mean to exhort someone? Well, the Greek word ha has a, a wide application of meanings, and the context will tell us whether the author is saying, I've got some good news for you. It's a friendly come-along suggestion. And... I'm only going to say this once. You better pay attention. So it is that imploring, urging, summoning authority as well as the consoling, comforting, encouraging, cheer-me-up kind of word. Now what is it in this context? Peter considered, as I said, this, uh, this entire letter to the exiles um, in the dispersion an exhortation. And at times, it is an appeal, a potent mixture of authoritative requirement, and more often, I think, the words of gentle persuasion. So, it is a word directed especially to the elders. So, does that mean that um, most of the rest of you in this room can, well, you can kind of pay me the honor of pretending to pay attention <laughs> or it'd be all right with you to just sort of check out. I, I'm, I'm going to ask for some audience participation here. Let's, let's all of us part participate. First of all, how many of you can actually, would you raise your hand? Just everybody raise your hand right now. It's a good kind of aerobic experience. Okay, <laughs> that's good. Now, you can either say yes, no, or I don't know to the question, should I pay attention to this exhortation if I'm not an elder? First of all, some of you might uh, want to say, mm, no, <laughs> it's not really for me. Uh, so I, I've got the permission to, you know, to, to show some etiquette here and not fall off to sleep. Or as they say, if you have fall off to sleep, not to fall over because you might wake somebody else up. <laughs> On the other hand, most of you already have been around church long enough to know how to give correct answers. But nevertheless, how many of you would say, no, this isn't really for me. I, I, I don't particularly have to pay attention. 
Like I said, or was about to say, you've been around here long enough to know that the answer to most Sunday school questions is Jesus, and the answer to this particular question is, sure, he, I'm talking, I want you to pay attention. Or, oh, so how many of, how many of you say yes, yes, I'm, I'm gonna, I want to pay attention this morning? <laughs> oh, that's great. Now, even if you check out later, you know, hang in there with me. In fact, you could legitimately say, I don't know. I don't know just how significant this particular text is for me. Well, I think there are several reasons why everybody should pay attention. First of all, Peter included this and the other exhortations for everybody else to read. Now, you shouldn't be meddling too much in other people's letters and, and, and mail. On the other hand, God wants us all to know all of these exhortations. It's the the next to last of five exhortations in the letter. Three whole pastoral letters, First and Second Timothy and Titus, do the same thing that these four verses do. They tell the church what the elders, what the leaders of the church are to be doing. The same thing is true in Acts chapter 20, verses 18 to 35. It's packed with instructions, in this case, to a particular group of elders, the elders of the church at Ephesus, by the Apostle Paul, exhorting them, imploring them, encouraging them as to how to, as it says in verse 28 of that chapter, to oversee and care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Hebrews 13, verses 7 and 17, are another two-verse rationale for listening when the calling and the responsibility of elders is before the church. Verse 7 of that chapter. Remember your elders, those who spoke the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy, not with groaning, for what that would be of no advantage to you. <laughs> make us, make us happy pastors, happy elders. One more reason. I've actually got a couple more besides this. All of you are already leaders anyway. You should be paying attention to this, whether you're very young or very old. There isn't anybody who's listening to my words right now, if you can understand what I'm saying, who isn't a leader in the sense that you're having an influence on another person, perhaps a whole group of people. And this text, by extension, can make that influence that you have a positive one, and in fact, possibly a life-changing one. So listen, you leaders, all of you in this room. And finally, a few of you people need an encounter with Peter's exhortation this morning to the elders because God intends for you to be an elder in this church. It is, as I said, both a fearful and wonderful thing to be a shepherd over God's flock of people. So may the Lord have his drawing power on everybody here. <laughs> Most of all, well, at least in a wonderful way on me as well. But particularly on some of you 
who will be serving the Lord in this special office. So let's pray. Let's ask for listening ears and hearts right now. Lord, may the meditation of my heart and the words of my mouth be acceptable to you. And Lord, may they have their drawing and convicting and encouraging impact on everyone here and perhaps particularly on those, as Bruce prayed, who would be goers and on those who would be elders and senders. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Three things about Peter, the exhorter. Uh, I don't think I... Let's, let's put up that picture of the, uh, of the elders. I want you to see our faces. There are 11 of us. <laughs> There's the first six. Now the other, the other five. There it is. Okay, Peter was there. And uh, you've seen these men. They've all been elders here for, for some time. Do you know who your elder is? If you are a covenant member of this church, one of these men is your elder. I hope you all know who that man is. And if you don't know, talk to us and we'll make sure that, uh, that you find out who that is. Some of you know who your elder is very well because your elder is doing a good job and you have reached out to your elder. So it's a symbiotic spiritual relationship that you have together. Well, again, this text, let's put the, the uh, outline up here. It's, it's an easy one to exegete, and I'm thankful for that for sure. Peter was going to, is going to tell us about himself. He simply introduced the epistle, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. But now here at near the end of the letter, he says several more things to identify himself. And so they have a kind of ascending sense of importance, it seems to me, as to why the elders in particular and all of us in general should pay attention to them. First of all, he calls himself an el a fellow elder. Now to the elders, that is an amazing thing for him to say. Here is Peter. There aren't very many people in the whole New Testament who rank as high in the order of leadership as the Apostle Peter, and yet here to these pastors of the churches and, and elders uh, in Asia Minor, he says, I'm your fellow elder. <laughs> I'm one with you. That is a, that's fast company for us elders today to be keeping because in a very extended sense, that's true for the elders as well. There is a fellowship among the elders, and Peter says of himself, I'm one of you. I understand this calling that's on your life. I have sympathy. I received this calling, this uh, explanation. I saw this picture of what it means to be a, a shepherd because I was with, I was with Jesus. I, I, I learned it from him. And, and now, a, a, as a fellow elder, I know what you're doing, what you're, what you're called to do. And uh, it's, so it's that first kind of sympathetic very humble word on Peter's part that he begins to further introduce himself. Second, he says, I am a witness of the sufferings of Christ. This, of course, is what qualified uh, Peter in the first place to be an apostle. 
It was those who were eyewitnesses to the whole life of Jesus. And he says, an eyewitness to his sufferings. Now what's unusual about that is typically when the apostles described their eyewitness accounts, they didn't point to his suffering, they pointed to his resurrection. His suffering is shorthand, not just for all of his life of struggle, but particularly for his crucifixion and death. And so the apostles say, we saw him come back from the dead. That's what they centered on. Why, why does Peter deviate from that pattern here in uh, 1 Peter? It's because he never wanders away from the primary pastoral concern that he had for those he was writing to, not only the elders, but to the church, which was suffering. And the cross of Jesus Christ is the most relevant thing to the sufferings they were enduring, and that will always be the case down through history, that the suffering of Jesus Christ is relevant to our sufferings. And one of the great, one of the significant links, it, it is a great one, that uh, we experience is the link that Peter is forging between the, the sufferings of the Lord Jesus on our behalf and our sufferings in his name. He's saying that over and over again. He, he, he says it in every chapter of this, of this letter. I won't take the time to read to you all of those, those citations, but if you want them, I'll just give you the, the citations. In the first chapter, verses 10 and 11, in the second chapter, verse 19, in the third chapter, verse 18, in the fourth chapter, <laughs> verse 13, and now here in the fifth chapter, verse 1, I am a witness of the suffering of Christ. But the real climax of Peter's credentials to be listened to by slaves, wives, husbands, and now us elders is the third thing that Peter uses as a self-descriptor. Not merely the modesty and meekness that he has, though, <laughs> though he had a right to be listened to simply because he was an apostle, and not just because he had seen our Savior's sufferings, especially the sufferings he observed when Jesus was groaning out his prayers in the Garden of Gethsemane or in the brutality of dying on a Roman cross and ultimately suffering because of the abandonment that he experienced under the wrath of God in our place. But even more astonishingly, the third thing that he says in this text, I exhort the elders among you as a partaker of the glory that is going to be revealed. In the 12th chapter of 2 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul is uh, boasting. He says, it's foolish of me to do this, but I'm, boast, I'm going to boast to you. Compare this <laughs> with anything those super apostles have to boast about. I was taken up into the third heaven. <laughs> I saw things that are, were so stupendous that a thorn in the flesh has been given to me to keep me from becoming conceited. Heaven, I was taken up into heaven. And now Peter here is saying, heaven came down to me. Heaven came down into me so that I'm a partaker of the glory of God. 
Well, the experience that he, was ha- that he refers to, of course, is the time when he and two other disciples, James and John, were taken up on a high mountain in the north of Galilee, and there Jesus was transformed in their presence. There Peter got to see the glory that someday all of us are going to see. The whole world is going to see that glory. But he was, a, he was a partaker of it in advance. He saw how wonderfully glorious Jesus is and the glory that he will share with all of us, his people. That's one of the huge links all the way through this, this uh, letter, isn't it? To be sure, Jesus' sufferings and his glory. Our suffering and our glory. That's what Peter is about. That's the hope, that's the hope of the gospel. That, that's what sustains us in the troubles that we're experiencing. The glory to be revealed is what will happen when Jesus comes back. Peter, in fact, uh, describes that experience explicitly in his second letter. He says, We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Let me stop right there in the midst of the quote. Yesterday, my son-in-law was giving a devotion to my 9- and 11-year-old grandchildren. And he asked them, is it always easy for you to believe in God, to believe what the, what the scriptures say? <laughs> What's the answer to that one? Well, the, an- the truthful answer is no. Sometimes it's not easy to believe. And what Peter is saying here is, God has provided on our behalf eyewitnesses to this truth. They are they are telling us something really happened in history. <laughs> believe, believe our testimony. Please believe it. We were eyewitnesses to his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, For we were with him on the mountain. So these are the three ties that bind the elders' hearts to Peter's. He is our fellow elder, bound to us in sympathy through sharing our pastoral care. He had the amazing eyewitness authority of an apostle. And he was one of the three on the mountain during Christ's life on earth. He actually saw what Jesus will look like when he comes back. He therefore was a partaker of the glory, the ultimate glory of God in Christ. Listen to him. Listen to him. Listen to him. The second half of the, uh, of the text, or second part, is Peter's exhortation. It comes to us quite simply in these words. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. That's the charge. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. This is the command. It's the metaphor, the major ruling metaphor for defining both the church and its leaders. 
people, sheep, that's who you are. That's who we all are. We are sheep together in the, in the flock of God. There are other metaphors, other analogies. We're God's servants. We're God's building. We're a holy nation, a royal priesthood. Peter uses several of them, but the main one that runs all the way through the Bible is this one. God has given us shepherd leaders, and we ourselves need them because we're sheep. So, with that exhortation, and, and by the way, there's a, an alternate translation that I like very much. It says, shepherd the flock of God that has been entrusted to you. And that key word there is entrusted. There are two other references to it that, that draw me to that translation. One is in the second chapter, verses 22 and 23, where it speaks of Jesus and says, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he revi was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he, he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself, entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So here's Jesus entrusting his soul. The other reference to the word entrusting is in the fourth chapter, verse 19, where we're told uh, to that we are, are those who suffer according to the will of God. We are to entrust our souls to a faithful creator while doing good. The word entrust is a banking term. It means to put something on deposit for safekeeping. Well, that's what Jesus was doing with his own soul during his, his earthly ministry. He kept entrusting his soul to, to his Father. That's what we're told to do now with our souls. They were on loan to us from God, and so we give them back to him for divine self, uh, safekeeping. And ironically, or perhaps it might be a little scary when you stop and think about it, God has taken your souls and entrusted them to us for safekeeping. That's, that's what your elders are, are, are to do, to with divine help, keep your souls for safekeeping. Well, then Peter goes into detail, describing three dimensions of doing this divine kind of safekeeping. Three matching do's and don'ts of godly eldering. We're warned against worshiping three worldly idols, the idols of grudging, the idol of greed, and the idol of pride and domination. And we are encouraged, on the other hand, like the chief shepherd, to delight in service that's willing and eager and exemplary. On the what to, to avoid side of this portrait of shepherding, shepherding ministry, there are clear threats of judgment. This is the link, another link, between this text and the one that came just before it a specific link in that text about a coming judgment in verses 17 and 18. For this is the time of, for judgment to begin in the house of God. If it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Yes, judgment is coming 
and it's going to begin in the house of the Lord and most specifically it will begin with the leaders with the pastors elders shepherds presbyters bishops lots of New Testament words to describe us it will begin with us and so what Peter is describing is both a great caution to us as well as a great encouragement to us this is what not to do this is what to do so let's look at these glaring contrasts tending the flock not under compulsion or grudgingly but willingly voluntarily as God would have you do it according to his will that's the first of these contrasts not under compulsion but willingly now there is so much about the Apostle Peter in the New Testament probably more biographical information about him that one wonders whether Peter could could talk about what to avoid as well as what to to uh, to uh, pursue basically out of his own experience both before and after being saved is Peter himself a walking illustration of don't do this <laughs> I know because I did it and do this because God did these new things in me I wonder if we can detect these illustrations of sinful behavior as well as sanctified behavior did Paul as I said know Peter know how to point both the one and the other because of his own checkered past well regardless he begins Peter begins with uh, starting against the the ministry of so-called compelled behavior laziness a love of ease and comfort and leisure and let us say there is a tremendous danger in the ministry of this of us becoming slothful what is to check the difference between external motivation I do it because I have to I do the minimal to get by and the opposite which is a willing gladness if the idols of comfort and control are in my heart are in those other ten guys hearts if that temptation is there the shepherding ministry is tailor-made for laziness you you can do that you can play it safe we can keep from really becoming your friends really coming alongside of you simply by going through the motions doing these sermons saying our prayers being professionals it can happen that way frankly this doesn't sound very much like Peter <laughs> before or after he was saved and filled with the Holy Spirit if anything by disposition or personality it seems to me he would have been the exact opposite than a lazy loafer <laughs> he would have been a kind of a perfectionist the kind of guy who was you know let's get out there and do this I mean after all he was out there fishing all night long though he caught nothing uh, when Peter and when Jesus called him uh, into the pastoral ministry you know performance oriented perfectionist burn the midnight oil <laughs> workaholic but what if the warning is against fear then Peter is a poster child for showing us how much he'd certainly learned from his past before Jesus breathed on him being afraid all of us have this challenge your elders as well as you 
He was the one who said to Jesus, I know a safe way for you to get to glory, and it doesn't have anything to do with the cross or with suffering. He was the one who ingloriously cowered before a little servant girl two out of the three times while he was in the process of denying he even knew Jesus. And later on in his career, he was caught playing the hypocrite because influential Jewish leaders had come from Jerusalem to see the work that was going on in Antioch, and he had withdrawn from the Gentiles so that he could keep company, win influence, in the fear of man with these influential leaders. Yet he was also willingness personified as a regenerate disciple. He was rescued by Jesus because Jesus prayed for him and told him, go and strengthen your brothers. And so he moved forward in a remarkable ministry. Who can doubt the voluntary boldness of Peter in rallying those disciples, in preaching at Pentecost, in defying the Jewish council, not once but twice, with words like we heard here, well, he sang together, there is no other name given among men by which we must be saved. We must obey God rather than men. That's out of the mouth of the previously fearful disciple. And perhaps the most wonderful thing I, I can find about Peter's uh, resume, so to speak, is the place he courageously took on. To be sure with a little bit of prompting to begin with, to go from the birthplace of the gospel in an entirely Jewish womb, taking that gospel to, the, to Cornelius' household and by extension to virtually all the rest of us in the world. He did that over and over again. He is the key human catalyst or ex, uh, uh, ex spokesman, so to speak, defending the gospel going to the Gentiles, both to the, against the circumcision party as well as in the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. So, don't do it grudgingly. Do it willingly. Secondly, Peter says, tending the flock not for shameful gain but eagerly. This is pretty easy to figure out. This is a against the money lover. This is against the hireling, the mercenary. He's the one that Jesus himself denounces in John 10. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not, he does not own the sheep. And when he sees this wolf coming, he leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he has a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. Sad to say, there are elder leaders like that in God's church. I don't think we have any here. I'm pretty sure we don't. But oh, what a terrible, fiery ordeal, not only coming on the earth, but beginning in the church, and woe to the elders, especially those who make their living from their pastoral labors, who do it for a paycheck, and who expect and require that they're going to get the Jesus discount in every business dealing they have to engage in. Again, there may be a hint of this impulse in Peter. He stood there listening as Jesus talked to the rich young man. 
uh, and uh, heard, go, sell everything that you have, give to the poor, and uh, you'll have treasure in heaven, and then come and follow me. And uh, Peter is listening to that, and he says, well, see, we've left everything. What's in it for us? A hundredfold with persecutions in the age to come and eternal life. But many who, will be, who are first will be last and the last first. That was Jesus' answer. That the apostles didn't get rich following Jesus is pretty clear when uh, Peter and John go into the temple and see this lame guy standing there. And, and remember what, what, uh, what uh, Peter says. I don't have any silver or gold, but what I have... I give to you, and in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And then he grabs the guy and lifts him to his feet. What a great miracle. And on the side, I don't have any of that, I don't have any of that little stuff that you want. I've got something far better. Uh, more threatening is his dealings with Ananias and Sapphira. <laughs> Here's the point for all of us, but particularly probably for leaders about taking great care when loving money turns into trying to merchandise the favor of God. And he denounced a magician who tried to buy the power of the Holy Spirit with these words, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. Again, Peter's extended condemnation of false prophets and teachers in his own second letter. Hmm. I won't read that one, but it's there. Chapter 2, verses 14 to 16. But the bottom line, perhaps, for Peter's reflection on the danger of loving money is by comparing his nearness, the nearness of his treason against Jesus with his fellow apostle or his fellow disciple, at least, Judas Iscariot, the keeper of the purse. <clears throat> the consequences of this fellow disciple's life, this lover of money, and perhaps what money could buy, who sold Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, the shuddering closeness Peter surely knew his own sin came to the lust that killed the keeper of the purse. Third, tend the flock, not domineering or lording it over those in your charge, but be exa being examples to the flock. Finally, Peter knew to warn his fellow elders then and us now about the specter of pride, the love of power and prestige, the failure to recognize we can't do anything without Jesus, the spiritual treason of somehow feeling self-reliant, or indispensable. And certainly we can see this power idol because it ran so consistently through the early life of the Apostle Peter. As we said, Peter telling Jesus he must never go to the cross. Peter resisting Jesus washing his feet. Peter boasting that though all the rest of them may fall away, I never will. <laughs> Wielding a sword at Jesus' arrest, cutting off Malchus's ear the servant of the high priest in the Garden of Gethsemane. But again, on the exemplary side of Peter's life are the breakthroughs of his faith, his repentance, his obedience, 
There he is in a fishing boat with this remarkable catch of fish, so many fish in the boat. It begins to sink, and Peter recognizes who's in the boat with him. Depart from me, for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. To which Jesus replied, Don't be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. He, his partners in the old fishing business, all of the other apostles and all the other disciples and leaders thereafter, we're, we're fishing for men and women. When Jesus asked, uh, who do you say that I am to the disciples, up pops <laughs> Jesus, Peter and says, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. When many other followers, casual followers of Jesus were deserting him, the Lord asked the 12, do you want to go away as well? And again, it's Simon Peter who answers, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And as I've mentioned, the preaching in the book of Acts by the Apostle Peter is astonishing. I look forward in the days to come when we're done with 1 Peter and march into the book of Acts for us to listen to the Apostle Peter. At Pentecost, in Solomon's porch after healing the lame man again twice before the Jewish council to Cornelius and his family and in the defense of the gospel against the circumcision party and before the Jerusalem council. The final part of Jesus' exhortation to the elders is the exhorter's expectation. It's in verse 4. When the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. 700 years before Jesus was born, Isaiah the prophet was shown what was to come. And Jesus in his day said, Isaiah saw my coming. He saw my own day. And here is part of the prophecy. <laughs> and Charles Stedham picked it for a responsive reading this morning. <laughs> I didn't know he was going to do that, but God did. <laughs> Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. Well, Jesus came. <laughs> he was the chief shepherd. He laid down his life for us and then took it up again. And the last thing he asked Peter shortly before ascending into heaven was essentially one question. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Yes. 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 To which Jesus responded, Then feed my lambs. Tend my sheep. Feed my sheep. And finally, follow me. That's what we're to do. If we love Jesus, we are to care for you, feed you. A dozen perhaps things that easily we, we could ask you, help us help you, help us feed you by our preaching and teaching the truths of Scripture. 
preaching obviously to our own souls first and foremost. Let us lead you in prayer, fervent prayer, exhortive prayer, especially as those prayers seek their success in what's said from this pulpit, what's said in the teaching ministry of the church finds application in your life. Let us feed you and take care of you faithfully as we administer the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. Help us preserve and defend the doctrine of the gospel so that together we have a clear, sound, and comprehensive knowledge of God's Word and that we love the truth. Help us labor for sound conversion of souls, our own souls, those in our family, those who are near to us here and everywhere around the world. Help us care for and you by having you care for the needs of believers and unbelievers who are sick and poor and suffering. And help us help each other lead godly lives as shepherds to one another. There may be times when your elders feel like the refining fire is too hot. We may feel that if it takes this much fire to burn away our own sloth and greed and pride, then it's not worth it. But that will be because we haven't been helping each other and most of all because we have taken our eyes off this all-satisfying chief shepherd, our Lord Jesus. Do not let that happen. You have a stake in our gaining our unfading crown of glory and we have a stake in you gaining yours. What is this crown of glory? Well, crowns are marks of victorious achievement. <laughs> a crown of life promised to those who remain steadfast under trial and who love God, according to James. Imperishable wreaths for those who run to win and receive the prize, according to First. Corinthians 9. Crowns of righteousness that the righteous judge will award on the day, that day when all of us love his appearing. 2 Timothy chapter 4. And unfading crowns of glory for willing, eager, exemplary shepherds. Glory is the other strong connection between this text and really the whole rest of the book of First Peter between Peter's first letter and that which came previously. Glory, eternal glory. Yes, there will be suffering and judgment, but there is hope, hope so big and certain and worthwhile. Remember, Peter saw it. He was there on the mountain and saw our hope. Well, we weren't there, but you need that hope and so do your elders. So we need to help each other. You can help us win our crowns of glory and we can help you win yours. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I, God, I thank you for... I should, I should thank these people, and I do. I thank you, God, for these people who give me and my colleagues the privilege to serve in the strength that Jesus provides, in the words the oracles of God that you have provided. I thank you for that privilege. And now I do pray, God, that you would draw that the men and women who should lead in this church, 
God, draw them, we pray, both closer to yourself and then we pray into the special, specific, gifted areas of service in their lives. Thank you now. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720 13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.